We are in Colossians 1.9. Let's pray. Father, give me grace to show grace. <clears throat> Be gracious to me so that I can say what you want me to say purely and solely out of love for your people. Let the love of Jesus that you have for your people show. Let them see you. Glorify Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What I have to say this morning could be received in many different ways. The message itself, I believe, and it's something that I have a conviction for, and it is a hill that I would die on. And it comes from what I see in self-proclaimed Christians all over our country, in our own communities and sometimes in our own homes. So this is my, <laughs> my Jerry Maguire moment. This is my manifesto against what has become normal for the American church. So I have no qualms about what I have to say to you today. My qualms come with how I say this to you. So I've taken careful measures to ensure that this message is delivered in a specific tone and variations of that tone throughout. So to produce a particular atmosphere today and to create a more biblical culture in this church that defies generic and nominal Christianity in America today. So this message could be perceived as harsh or domineering. So then how I frame this sermon is vital. And so since 1 Peter 5.3 says that pastors should not be domineering, I'm going to frame this message around the biblical fabric of shepherding. Because I am a shepherd. And sometimes shepherds have to love their sheep in different ways. So right now I have to do something that is fitting for a shepherd, though not typically enjoyable or even easy, uh, nor is it enjoyable or easy sometimes for the sheep. And that is to grab you by the legs and pull you from the mouth of the lion. Now I get that analogy 
from Amos 3.12, where God is the shepherd. This is an analogy that the Lord himself tells. And in that instance, he's the shepherd. Now, in the New Testament, we find the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus, to be our rescue. The one who pulls us from the mouth of the lion, of the enemy, of sin. Pulls us from the mouth of sin and hell and rescues us for eternal joy in his presence. And what we also find in the New Testament is that Jesus eventually leaves this earth. And in leaving, he leaves behind under-shepherds. Men who are to fulfill his work in his church of shepherding his sheep in his current absence, and yet they are not left absent of Jesus, but instead are given the Spirit of Christ in order to shepherd his sheep in love and compassion, understanding, grace, mercy, forgiveness, kindness, gentleness, and in friendship. But sometimes friendship comes with a cost, and it's a worthy cost. A valuable cost worth paying. And usually what costs us hurts us. But good shepherd, a good shepherd knows that the cost is worth it. Uh, a good shepherd knows that though it hurts the sheep to be ripped from the mouth of the lion, the sheep's only hope of keeping its life is that the shepherd is willing to do the hard thing and pull. Though the sheep wails and cries as the shepherd attempts its rescue, the shepherd knows that the sheep has only two choices. Escape pain and die, or endure pain and live. As your shepherd, it is my intention to be as much like Jesus as is possible or allowable from God for me to be to you. Unlike Jesus, I will do that poorly at times. I will sin with you and I will sin like you. I will fail, but I will learn and I will grow with you. However, there are times, though less frequently than I would like, there are times when the Spirit of God in Christ gives me the grace to stand outside of your circumstances and peer into your lives and see what is really going on. By His grace, He can give me the momentary wisdom to see the root cause of your struggles. And by His mercy, He can give me ears the ears of Christ, to hear the sheep struggle for its life while clenched by the jaws of sin. And by his love, he can send me to your rescue in his name and for his glory. You're dying. You are dying. I, I don't mean you're not saved and you're going to hell. Not that kind of death. I'm saying that what you desire is too little. It's, it's too small. It's too weak. And it's killing you. I know it doesn't feel that way. And it does not feel that way because sin is so clever and the enemy is so clever 
and we are so clever that we convince ourselves that we are doing okay by justifying our thoughts and our actions and our affections. And so I have two goals today, okay? Goal number one is to convince you that your desires and affections for Jesus are far too weak. And my second goal is to convince you to change. Colossians 1.9. Paul says, And so, from the day we heard. Heard what? To know that, we have to go back to verses 7 and 8, which says, Just as you learned it. What's it? It is the gospel that we find in verse 5. So, just as you learned the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He, Epaphras, is a faithful minister of Christ on your, be- on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. That is what Paul heard about the Colossians, their love in the Spirit. And since hearing of their love in the Spirit, which is evidence of their desire and affections for Jesus, he then says in verse 9, because of that, We have not ceased to pray for you. Now take note here. This is affection. This is love. Prayer is Paul's love language. And it is an expression not only of his desire and love for the Colossians, but mostly a product of his love and desire for Jesus. He loves Jesus so much, he can't help but pray for the things that Jesus loves so much. And that's you. You ever try to pray and you just don't feel like it? That is called a lack of love and desire. That's what prayer is. Desire. Prayer is desire. When you don't want to pray, it is not... The the, the reason we do pray most of the time is out of duty. You just heard Christian talk about the difference between duty and desire. And we look at the Old Testament, we see the We see in in 1 Chronicles that God literally punishes Israel for doing exactly what he told them to do. Why did he punish them for doing exactly what they were supposed to do? Because he said, you did not do it with joy. Joy is obedience. That's why we don't want to pray, because we don't want to pray. There's no desire. We don't desire Jesus. Why is your prayer life lame? Because you lack desire for God. Why do I see Christians in our church today, in Grace Church, who are constantly praying, always talking about prayer, asking for prayer, praying themselves, praying, 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 and saying things like, I believe, I believe that God will do this. I trust the Lord. I love the Lord. I want to pray. Pastor Mark, we pray right now. Why does that person behave that way? Because they desire Jesus. There's a genuine love and devotion and a filled affections for Christ. Why is your prayer life lame because you don't desire God and you lack desire for God because your affections are not fixed on Christ but on the world do you hear that 
Your affections are going somewhere. And if they're not going to Christ, they're going to the world, even the Christian world. And we think, oh, well, I love Christian things, but they're not fixed on Jesus. Prayer is the product of desire for God in Jesus. Look at the life of Jesus. He was constantly retreating to pray. Why? Because prayer was communion with his Father. And he desired his father more than anything. So he was constantly like, hey, disciples, yeah, you guys are cool and I'm working on you. You're doing great. I love you. But I just need a moment with something that I desire more than you, the father. And what does that love for the father produce in Christ? An endless, great, growing love and desire for these men. We can't do the things we're supposed to do. We can't love the things we're supposed to love. That's people. We can't love people. We can't do the things we're supposed to do. Pray. We can't do the things we're supposed to do. Tell people about the gospel. We can't do the things we're supposed to do. Serve in ministry. We can't do the things we're supposed to do. Give. We can't do the things we're supposed to do. Go to church. If we don't want to. You have to want to. You have to want Jesus. It's not just about wanting to give and wanting to pray and wanting to go to church and wanting to serve and wanting to do these things. None of that stuff matters. You can want to do it, but you're never going to keep doing it if there is not a root flame that ignites your fire and that flame has to be on Christ. Here's what Puritan Henry Skugel wrote in the year 1677 about Jesus' prayer life. He says, another instance of Jesus' love to God was his delight in conversing with him by prayer. Now notice what he's saying. This is Jesus' love for God that ignites prayer. Not a sense of duty, but a sense of joy and desire for his Father. That's what causes him to pray. Which made him frequently retire from the world and with the greatest devotion and pleasure. No duty, with great devotion and pleasure. Spend whole nights in, it, in that heavenly exercise, though he had not sins to confess and but few secular interests to pray for, which, alas, are most of the only things that are wanted and drive us to our devotions. Nay, we may say his whole life was a kind of prayer, a constant course of communion with God. If the sacrifice was not always offerings, Yet was the fire still kept alive. Nor was ever the blessed Jesus surprised with that dullness that we always have. Or tepidity of spirit, which we must many times wrestle with before we can be fit for the exercise of devotion. Jesus' desire for God was so intense that his life was a sort of prayer. And his affections for the Father burned so intense and so hot that he was constantly retreating to pray. It's like being at a party. Introverts can relate. I can't. It's like being at a party you don't want to be at, which in my mind doesn't exist. If there's a party, I want to be there. 
I have a severe case of FOMO, uh, fear of missing out. So uh, I want to be at every party. I want to be at the center of every party. I just see the way I am. Introverts, I know you don't want to be at that party. And actually, that's not always true because when people invite you, you're like, oh, I'll be there. And then 15 minutes before, you're like, I'm not going to make it, right? So introverts, this might relate to you, but I think we all, even extroverts, can feel this. You go to a party you don't want to be at. You don't know anybody there. An introvert's worst nightmare. And the only person there that you know is your best friend who invited you. What are you going to do? You have no interest or desire in the other people around you. and develop, You have no desire for them. So what do you do? You cling to that person that you love and desire most. That's where your desire lies. That's what prayer with Jesus is like. None of this peripheral stuff matters in my life. All that matters is you, Jesus. So I cling to you. I run to you. All this other stuff, yeah, it matters. Is building relationships with these other people at the party, does it matter? Yeah, it matters. And it's helpful. And it's important. Okay. But what matters most is where my desire and my love and my affection is fix and that is on Christ so it is Christ that we cling to and from that clinging comes a life that is ignited by prayer that should be our life clinging to Jesus because our desire for him is so portent so intensely profound and our affections for him so great that he is our only source of joy and satisfaction half of my work as your shepherd is to make you aware and create and cultivate that desire for God in Jesus, for you. That's half my work. And that work I cannot do alone. The other half I do alone. I pray for you. I pray for all of you, all the time. Sometimes that prayer is out of duty. I know I have to. I don't feel like praying that moment. That's not because I don't love you. It's because my desire for God is weak. But I can pray for you alone. But the half of my ministry as your shepherd, I need you for. I cannot make you desire Jesus. I can tell you to desire Jesus. I can stand at this pulpit and I can yell loudly desire Jesus and I can say over and over again want him desire him have him he's good and he's enough you want I can say it over and over and over again I can preach the gospel and I can declare to you all the truths about who Christ is I can lift him up and make him look great and beautiful and desirable and I can tell you that that's where your affections should be fixed and I can repeat that week after week but I a human being cannot light your fire And this sermon is my bleeding heart. This is my shepherd's call to the sheep, to the sheep of Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. This is my declaration to you to desire Jesus. Most of you would say that you do desire Jesus. And I would agree for some of us. Uh, what I would say is, in response to that is, at times, you do. Uh, I think there are many here who live a life that is a clear example of desire for Jesus, filled with prayer and devotion and 
love and affection for Christ, which shows up in love and devotion and affection for the church and doing ministry and serving and giving and loving and all kinds of other evidences of genuine passion for Jesus Christ. I see that in this church. But Paul told the Thessalonians who were loving God very well. Thessalonian church was amazing. They, had, they were doing everything right. You know what Paul says to them in chapter 4, verse 1? Do that more. <laughs> doesn't say, you're doing a good job, you can stop now. Or just plateau, keep doing what you're doing. He says, more and more, that you do so more and more. So, to those who believe yourselves to genuinely and deeply desire Jesus, I say to you, do so more and more. So this is not just a call to those who do not desire him at all, and this is not just a call to those who desire him some, but know that they should desire him more. This is a call to everybody to do so more and more. You cannot love him enough. You cannot want him enough. There is no limit to your desire. Do you understand that? You, there is never going to be a day when you say, I have loved him as much as I can. And he's going to say, my nature and my character and my glory is eternal. There is no end to the degree of satisfaction that God can pour into your life, which means there is no end to the degree of joy and desire and growing affections that you can have for Jesus Christ. He never is, never, never kept off, never done loving him, or never had enough of Jesus. So, it does not matter how much you desire him now. I see the church of America living its life for football and games and movies and their families, their jobs for their possessions, for their stuff. Listen, I'm not saying you can't have those things. I'm not saying you can't enjoy those things. I'm not saying you, shouldn't, you should have the things that God gives you and you should steward them well. Yeah, amen to that. They are becoming idols. Becoming, are you kidding me? This has been going on for hundreds of years. This has been going on for, since my entire lifetime in the American church. It's just a new generation. My generation is now the people who are running the church. They're becoming elders and pastors. They're becoming the families that consume the pews. And my generation, I'm a millennial, by the way. A little, I'm like an old millennial, just so you know. Okay, so you, so you Gen Xers, I get you. It's cool. My brother and sister are Gen Xers. I'm kind of like on the line. I'm a little bit of both. You know, I'm like an old school. Anyways, um, so like, I don't mooch off my parents anymore. So, uh, <laughs> they finally cut me off last year, so I thought maybe, <laughs> uh, no. Um, there's a new generation rising up within the church. It's the same idolatry. 
It's the same idolatry in the church. It's the same love for things, same love for the American dream that you heard preachers preaching about in the 1950s, you heard preachers preaching about in the 70s, and in the 90s. It's the same message. It's the same idols. It's the same idolatry that is stealing your heart and your mind. It's just covered in a new coat. It's just wearing a new mask because we're a new generation that thinks, oh, well, you guys had that kind of idolatry. We do it different and better, and we're cool and new. And our kids are going to have their own new way of doing the same idolatry, and it's the same root problem. You just don't want God. He's, he's just not enough for you. So I, I'm, I'm speaking to you people in this room, but I'm speaking about the church at large in America. And it's not just America, but that's where we live. And the American dream is murdering the gospel. It's killing me as a pastor. And you know what kills me even more than seeing it in the church? is seeing it in myself. And to think, I, I just, for the last two days, I'm just sitting here staring at the sermon like, I can't preach this. I can't preach this. I almost changed it. I almost changed it this morning. I almost just threw it away and was like, I'm just going to talk about this verse and just say what it says right here, the specific thing, and just focus on that this morning and not say all this because I can't say this to people when I'm the one who needs to hear it. So, none of us are free from this message. None of us desire God enough. We just don't. And I think if you took an honest, honest examination of your own life and your own affections and where your desires and affections lie, it shows up in your life. How much do you pray? How much do you read? How much do you study? How often do you go to church? How often are you involved in ministry? How, how do you serve? What are you doing? Not just that. Examine what you really want in life. Where do you spend your free time and your entertainment? How do you spend your time? What do you do? How much do you... Be honest. Examine your life. Look at the evidence. It shows you what you love. Now, once Paul is motivated by love to pray for his friends, he tells them what he prays for. Specifically how he prays for them. And it's in verse 9. And he says, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Four years ago, John Piper told me to go away for a couple days, leave my phone behind, bring my Bible, a pen, and paper. Pray, read, write. And, I just, and just as Paul knew, Paul, the Apostle Paul knew his personal ambition in Romans 15, 20, so I should go and ask God to reveal to me my personal ambition as a Christian and as a man and as a pastor. So I did. And while I was away for two days, God made it abundant, abundantly clear to me what my ambition in life is. My ambition is to fill his people with the knowledge of his grandeur and supremacy. To fill his people with the knowledge of his will. This prayer that Paul tells to the people in Colossae is the same ambition and drive that I have to be a man, to be a husband, to be a father, to be a friend, to be a Christian, and to be your pastor. This is what drives me. This is my ambition. To fill you with the knowledge of his will. 
to know his will, his nature, his word, to know him personally and intimately. I cannot give you a better gift than Jesus himself. That is my ambition. For you to know him. To know who he really is. But, but, what good is knowledge without desire? Do you know what knowledge without desire for God is? It's Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the very heresy that was invading the Colossian church. Knowledge was their boast, and knowledge was their desire. This is the problem with too many young and overzealous godly men and women who desire knowledge instead of God. They're saved, they're passionate, they have the gospel right, but they desire knowledge about God instead of desiring God himself. So what good does it do for you and what good does it do for this church and what good does it do for the kingdom of God if I teach you and give you knowledge but you lack a desire for God and you lack affections for Jesus? It's just words landing on empty hearts. It's just information for you to store in your head and repeat later. It means nothing. It doesn't transform you. It doesn't change your life. You have to want Him. He has to be your desire. Psalm 73, 5, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Is that your life verse? It ought to be. Whom have I in heaven but you? What's in the heaven? Riches, glory, no sin, pure joy. Everything you could ever want and desire in heaven, and it is nothing without God. None of that stuff matters. The whole idea of spending eternal life with Him is about spending eternal life with Him. That is how we will spend our eternal life, and that is what our desire and joy should be now. That is where our affections should be fixed now. Listen, I have the same battles as you. I, I face the same temptations, the same struggles, the same hardships, the same questions, the same desires for sin as you. I have the same basket that's full of shame that I dump on my head when I am not who I want to be. I know your life because it's my life. So please understand that when I tell you that as your shepherd, I have to pull you from the teeth, from the mouth of apathy toward God, it is because I beg Jesus every Sunday morning before I come up here and preach to you about desiring God, that he would pull me out of the mouth of apathy about desiring God. And I fear because I believe that I have the personality and ability to stand at this pulpit without the Holy Spirit and deceive you for 45 minutes and convince you that I desire God and you should too. I think I could pull that off. And you think to yourself, man, he's such a, he really gets us, he really made us feel like we should desire Jesus. Oh, you know, I, I, I think I could trick you. I wouldn't pull it off for very long, but I think I could do it for 45 minutes. That terrifies me. I wish I, was, I wish I was more like Paul, 
Paul's like, I, can't, I don't even know how to talk. I wish I was more like Moses. God, send someone else. I don't know how to talk. I'm like, God, why did you make me this way? Why did you make me convincing? I don't, I wish I wasn't. So that when I was, people would know it's you. That's my prayer. God, I, I sit in my office and I'm like, God, I don't desire you the way I should. And I have to go tell them to. just want you to know we all feel it and just because we all feel it it is not an excuse to not desire him as I pray that prayer for you every week and as I live life with you and I serve you and I love you I have to tell you this your desires are too weak your love is given to another. Like an adulterer, you seek pleasure that was never intended for you. You have been given something better. You have been given a greater desire. You have been given a greater object for your affections. And we spend most of our affections on, on games, on drinking, on entertainment, on money, on pursuing careers and ideas or things of this world. We spend all our spiritual energy on living in fear of what we do not and cannot control. We spend all of our spiritual energy on trying to appear to be something that we are not and that thing that we are not is in love with Jesus. You can fool everyone in the church, but God knows where your affections and your desires lie. And he knows that they lie not with him but in other things. Even good things like families and education and work. How can I ever expect to, to teach you or, or for you to be filled with the knowledge of his will if you don't desire him? And what good is that knowledge of his will if you simply use it to justify your complete apathy for the things of God and justify your apathy for church attendance and justify your apathy for time in his word and justify your apathy toward prayer and justify your apathy toward training your family in righteousness. That's how we use the knowledge of God if there is no desire. We use it to justify our lack of desire. So I don't want to teach you. I want to inspire you. And then I'll teach you. Our affections for Jesus are too weak. We are trapped in the mouth of apathy. We are trapped in the mouth of complacency because we want easy. And easy because it's comfortable. Because we've created a world of comfort and we love our comforts. Holly and I talked about selling our home. We were totally going to sell our home. Really wanted to sell my home. We were going to make this move that was going to help us out financially. And one of the biggest struggles for me to get over was losing the comfort that I have developed in my home. And I thought to myself when I realized that, what the hell would I do if God called me to Africa to share the gospel? I wouldn't go. I'm too afraid to lose my comforts. No wonder I lack desire. We like it easy. 
But easy doesn't lead to glory. Easy leads to hell. Matthew 7, 14, Jesus said, For the gate is narrow and the way is easy. No, hard. That leads to life. And those who find it are few. Do you hear that? Those who find it are few. Few. Is your life so profoundly marked by desperate desire and an unquenchable affection for Jesus that you are clearly and noticeably and definitely part of the few? Because when I look at the church in America, I see they all look like the same and I don't see any few. I see a lot of people who go to church and dress nice. They're nice. They're nice people. Guess what? So is the unbelieving business guy who sells lots of shares. He's a nice guy and he dresses nice. What's the difference? What's the difference? Most people who call themselves Christians only do one thing better than the rest of the world. They go to church. Sometimes. What in the world? I mean, I'm just going to be brutally honest with you guys. Seriously, what in the world is more important than obeying God's command to gather together in fellowship for corporate worship that intensifies your affections and desires for God? What in the world is more important? What? Sleep? Are you kidding me? That's why we get heaven. Eternal rest. You can sleep when you die. <laughs> All right, that's not fair. But <laughs> sleep on Saturday. Make adjustments. Sleep all day Saturday if you have to. If that's what it takes to get to church. Adjust your schedule. Move your time. I realize, my wife just said this, every time you talk about people going to church, you're talking to people who are at church. I'm like, I know, I say that every time I talk about going to church, that I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, the people who are at church. But listen, you need to know this. What in the world is more important than communion with God in prayer regularly at home by yourself and devoting your time daily and constantly to prayer with God? What in the world is more important than digging into God's word and, and, and to knowing God's will for you and, his knowledge, and digging into the knowledge of his word? What is more important than that? What in the world is keeping you from igniting your passion and zeal and affections and desire for Jesus? What in the world... It's the world. That's what. That's what's keeping you from desiring him. It's the world. It's too tempting to us. It steals our desires. And we easily justify our apathy toward Jesus by occasionally doing something that the Bible tells us to. Right? We know we don't genuinely desire him. We know our lives don't reflect that desire. But we do a couple things occasionally, often enough, to make us not feel the guilt and shame of the fact that we don't actually desire him. And there is very little evidence or fruit of desire and affection for Jesus in our life. So what do we do? We go to church every once in a while. We write a check every once in a while. We help in this or that ministry every once in a while. And we do that one thing here or there until, and just, to, just to alleviate the guilt and the shame that we feel about the fact that we're not who we think we should be 
And we know it, we don't want to admit it, or we admit it, and once we admit it, we do that one thing, check off that box, and we think we're good. Until, after a long enough time of not doing anything again, we start to feel that shame and guilt again, and then we check another box, we write another check, we show up and do this or that. Lame. It's not Christianity. You're in a social club and you're barely a member. That's what that is. All of those things that we do, those are empty and vain sacrifices to God that you do not, to a God that you do not know well nor desire much at all. I mean, listen to David's pain-fueled passion for God in Psalm 51, 16 through 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Stop offering God your few works. Stop offering God your occasional church attendance. Stop offering God your minor sacrifices of time and money. Blah, 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 blah. It's wasted work. It's a waste of your money. It's a waste of your time. It's a waste of my time. It's a waste of the church's time. Be committed or don't. And that commitment comes from desire. Only in that brokenness that David talks about can a heart recognize its absolute and complete dependence and need for God. And only in brokenness does one cry out to Jesus, I need you and I want you. I desire you. You alone, God. You are all that I want. You alone in Christ is all I need. You are enough. And from that brokenness will grow desire for God that feels genuine Offerings of time and worship and money and service. And it will be fruitful and it will build God's kingdom. And you will be satisfied in him. The world has its teeth around your desire and affection and I am here today to grab you by the legs and pull you out of the world. It is not enough for you. The world is not enough for you. It will never be enough for you. It will always please you enough to keep you coming back. It will tease you with its desires and it will give you false affection and steal from you what is meant to be given to God, which is your love, your desire, your affection. The American church today, the culture of the American church today is an adulterer, a cheating bride, a Judas to its savior. We have been given life, affection, and desire for one who makes all of life worth living. And we sell it away every day for a few coins, for a few more dollars, for a few moments of fleeting pleasure, for a few accolades, for one more client, for one more game, for one more boast, for one more night, for one more drink, for one more fill-in-the-blank. And what do we get in return? You know what we get in return? The very characteristics that mark the generation of millennials today. Agony, misery, depression, anxiety, stress, worry, fear. My wife had no idea 
what I was going to preach this morning. Last night we were sitting in bed and we were listening to all these old school jams from when I was in like high school. I'm like, oh, this takes me back. This is so cool. Played this one song. It's a fairly new song. The words were, I don't remember the exact words, but um, it, go, it says, I feel overwhelmed, stress, anxiety, something's coming over me, whatever, I don't remember the words. It was all about like stress, anxiety, overwhelmed, over, you know, I'm, I'm anxious, whatever, anxiety. So she's snatching all these words, and as this, that's the chorus of the song. And Holly goes, that's like the theme song of our generation. <laughs> I was like, yeah, did I tell you what I was going to preach? So, that's what happens. One more thing that we just go after we want. It's not him. It's not him. It's one more something else. One more fill in the blank. Just another fill in the blank. Just a, I want, just a, I want this. I want that. I'm going to do this. And it's not Jesus. And when it's not Jesus, we suffer agony, misery, depression, anxiety, stress, guilt, worry, shame, fear. And then we put on our Christian hat and say, time to give my worries to God because he's so faithful to me even though I'm still sad. God's like, you don't even want me. You're only coming to me because you're in such bad shape. And here's the beautiful thing about a beautiful God that you should desire. He's going to help you anyways. What? And he loves you anyways. And he'll be there for you anyways. He's always there with you and for you. What an awesome, gracious, forgiving, loving, patient God. But I can't help but see how we grieve the Spirit who says on Jesus' behalf, am I not enough? Am I not enough for you? What in the world is better than me? That's his, that's his claim. What? What is keeping you from wanting me? Why don't you want him? He has given you everything. Why don't you want him? He has proved his unshakable and undeniable love in a sacrifice that cannot be matched when he died on the cross for your sins to give you eternal life. Why don't you want him? I can't teach you. I mean, I, I want to, but I can't. I can't teach you. That's my ambition. I can't fulfill God's ambition for my life as your shepherd to teach you the knowledge of his will because you don't want it. Because that knowledge of his will lands on deaf ears. I know I'm being harsh. And listen, I'll give you a little disclaimer. There are so many ways I could stand up here and boast about you guys and how great you are and how wonderful you, wonderful you are and how many ways I see your affection and love for Jesus and how many things I see you doing as evidence of that and how many of you specifically do so much. You prayed together. I could go on and on about all the wonderful, great things that God is doing here through you and for you because of your affection and desire for him. But there is always room for more and we have never, never have enough. You do want to hear this message, even though we're somewhat deaf to it. And the world covers your ears, and you can hear 
the muffled message of a greater desire through the world's hands over your ears and you'll think about it and you'll contemplate and even for a moment you'll desire and you'll go, oh man, that was a really impactful sermon. I should be thinking about that this week. That's it. Because the world has its hands on your ears, but when its hands are on your ears, its hands are on your head, controlling the way you think because that's where we fixed our affection and it slowly turns our attention away from Jesus on Sunday afternoon to Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday. <gasps> Weekly refresh article from Pastor Mark about how I should love Jesus a little more. Oh, Thursday, <laughs> Friday. Saturday. Ooh, work day. Thank you for the six of you who came. It's evidence. It's evidence that it's not here. You're not perfect. You never will be. I don't ever want to spend every single week up here coming down hard on you. But remember, I wanted to frame this around the fabric of shepherding. I love you. When I discipline my children, I'm not disciplining you. I'm training you in some sense. So in some regard, that's discipline. But when I, when I discipline my children, I communicate to them, I love you. And I don't want to do this to you, but I have to discipline you. It's for your good. And it will hurt, but you will be better. And even if you're not, it doesn't matter. I am commanded to do it. I am commanded as your father to discipline you. Grace Church, I am commanded by God as your shepherd to correct you, to rebuke you, to train you in godliness. Sometimes it's going to hurt. But the way that God treats those whom he loves is through discipline. And this is how I'm loving you today. Let this message be my effort as your shepherd to rip you from the mouth of the world and your love for worldly pleasure and your apathy toward Jesus. Let this message be my effort as your shepherd to ignite your affections for Christ, to increase your desire for him, to change the way you think about what it means to be a Christian because most Christians in America are light years away from being what the New Testament describes a believer. I read the Bible and I look at what the first... Now, listen, I'm not one of those pastors that says, we ought to be more like the first century church. No, we're, no we don't. Are you kidding me? They didn't have iPhones, right? They didn't have massive auditoriums. They didn't have worship bands and drums. Well, maybe they had drums probably to some degree. But, you know, they didn't, have, they didn't do church the way we do church. It's a different culture. We're not the first century church. But there are so many elements within that first century church that should mark and identify the church today. And one of the biggest ones lacking is zeal and passion and evangelism. You want to know the fastest way to, get, you want to, know the fastest way to grow the church? statistically, the best way to grow the church, to get people saved, plant a church. You thought I was going to say evangelism. How do, we, how do we grow the church? You go tell people about Jesus. That doesn't work anymore. I mean, it does, but it doesn't work because Christians won't do it. So it doesn't work because we don't do it. 
So what's the best way to build the church, to grow the church, to get people saved? Statistically, plant a church. But you know, you know why it works? Do you know why it works? Do you know what kind of crazy, out-of-your-mind psychopath you have to be to plant a church? Do you know how hard it is to plant a church? Do you know how difficult it is to plant a church? Planting a church is one of the most difficult things a human being could ever do. Look at Paul's life. The whole world said Paul is a weirdo. He's a crazy nut running around talking about Jesus all the time. He got arrested and went to trial. Like, what do you have to say for yourself? He's like, all right, let me tell you what I have to say to myself. Jesus died on the cross and rose from your grave. That's what I have to say for myself. Like, whatever, dude. You know? They just thought he was just weird. You know how, you know, you know what kind of personality you have to be to plant a church? You know why church plants garner so many people believing in Jesus? Because church planters are a little crazy. And you know why they look crazy? Because they love Jesus so much. Their desire for him is so on fire. And they're like, I love him so much, I got to go plant a church. These other churches, nah, cut it for me. I go to those churches. They're like, oh, praise the Lord, singing songs. And the pastor goes, well, everybody, you should pray more. And uh, you can write your checks to this church and see you next Sunday. And it's like, oh, man, I feel better about myself today. What? What is that? Is garbage. What is that? Like, I mean, there are elements of the thing I just described that are fantastic, of course. Order in worship and structure to the way we do things. That's not life. That's not life. That's organization. That's not who we are. We're an organism of Christ. So, church planners get people saved because church planners are so on fire for Jesus. Their desire and a passion and a zeal for him that is unmatched by most people in the church. And that's why those church plants get a ton of people saved. Why? When I, go, I went to a church planting conference with one of the heads of our denomination. He invited me to go along. He thought I should plant a church. I thought, no, I shouldn't because I saw the, the ignited desire of all these church planters. And I just got so dang ticked off. Because I was like, why is this only church planters? What about the, the churches that exist? Why are we talking about planting churches? Why don't you guys go into your church? Yes, we should be planting more churches. Amen. I will support it financially. I will support it from the pulpit. We ought to be planting churches. But why? Where is the, the, the love for Jesus and that passion for sharing the gospel and that passion for Christ and the affections that have developed for Jesus in the churches that exist and I knew right then and there, I'll never plant a church. Well, maybe one day, I don't know. But at that moment, I felt, I'll never plant a church. Never. Because there's too many churches that don't have that and need it. And that's where I'm needed. Listen, that's all I'll say now. I know this hurts. I'm being harsh. But it's supposed to hurt. Growth hurts. but it's worth it. I don't want to give you a three-point sermon on how to increase your affections for Jesus. And you go, oh, that was nice. I just want you to want him. I just want you to want him. And I can't make you do that. He is beautiful. Men, enough with the chauvinistic male machoism. I mean, yeah, there are so many aspects of manliness that is all about manliness. 
The manliest thing you can do is fall in love with another man named Jesus. He is kind to brokenhearted. He's worth loving. He's calm to the stressed. He is the answer to the cynic. He is the embrace of love for your anguish. He is the truth for your wonder. He is worth it. He is enough. He is fresh air to you, suffocating on your own self-deprivating voice in your head. He is joy in a world of suffering. He is the example of perfection. And he is the grace of God to give you his perfection. He is worthy. He alone is worthy. His compassion is never outmatched by your need. And his friendship never ceases to pursue you. He is grand beyond all comprehension. His ways and his mind are unfathomable. His love is seen in him being a transcendent God who made himself like us so that he could have us and so that we could have him and know him and glorify him and enjoy him forever. He is more than enough. More. More than enough to satisfy you. And if you've ever dipped your toe in the pool of joy of Jesus and you thought, ooh, that kind of felt nice. Uh, I'll come back for more of that later. I'm telling you, Get naked and jump in. Strip off everything that keeps you from getting in the water and dive into the deep end head first. Where is your passion for Christ? Because the church needs it. The kingdom needs it. And you know who else needs it? A world filled with people who are going to hell. He is more than any pleasure this earth has to offer because every pleasure that this earth has to offer finds its source in Jesus Christ. And he gives you himself. He gives himself to you. To be loved and to love. He gives you doctrine to understand him. Breath to praise him. Life to live for him. Love with which to love him. And he gives you desire that is intended for him alone. And he gives you affection that finds no better satisfaction than in him. Jesus is enough. Why don't you want him? Let's pray. Lord, if there's any heart in this room right now, that is justifying their life and saying, I do love him enough. I do want him enough. This message isn't for me. Break that soul. Break that person's soul like you did to David. If that's me, break me. Ignite an unquenchable flame in this body of yours that is centered and focused on you, Jesus. We pray it in your name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You guys have a wonderful week.